Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Thanks so much, Andrew. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a closer look at uh, that passage uh, together. Gracious Father, please be with us now as we think a little bit more on this passage from your word. May the same spirit that inspired these words to be uh, spoken and recorded inspire and move us and illumine our hearts such that we might hear you speaking uh, to us and revealing yourself more to us so that we might love you better. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in 2013, the ABC show uh, Q&A was held at the Opera House. Uh, on the panel was the uh, Christian journalist, Peter Hitchens, uh, who commented that he and others, uh, while they're still allowed, are entitled to say the cultural and moral revolution of the last 50 years or so is a mistake. Uh, to which the LGBTQI activist and media pundit uh, Dan Savage responded saying this, uh, You are free to hold your own opinions, but you are not free to sit there and say that other people who are just as free as you are to live their own lives and make their own choices are in some way damaging you personally or in some way destroying society. People are freer now, happier now. It's a less intolerant world than it used to be because people like me are now empowered to look at people like you and say that you are full of it. 
After which, uh, the entire room in the opera house applauded. Broke into applause. And in many ways, our own society is still applauding uh, the view that Christianity is what's wrong with the world. So, as Christians, how might we respond to this kind of thing as a church and as individual Christians? Well, I reckon today's passage might help us a little bit with that, but wonderfully takes us there through God's grace. But before we get there, you might remember from last week uh, in chapter 20, just recapping, we saw uh, Abraham behaving like a jerk again, uh, scheming with his wife Sarah, deceiving the pagan king of Abimelech, sinning against him and then trying to justify it. But in the process of Abraham's unfaithfulness to, to people and to God, we see God nonetheless remains faithful to him, faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham. Uh, God blesses him even though he clearly doesn't deserve it. And this highlights just how undeserved God's grace is, but also how necessary it is if the world is to know God's promised blessings through Abraham. That was one of the promises that God made to Abraham, that he would bless the world through him. But this story is far from done looking at God's grace, because as we see here in chapter 21... God's not just mercifully faithful, he's laughably faithful. Which is where we're going today. Uh, To see that point one, God's laughably faithful. And as such, point two, we're to be generous towards all people as he is. So, point one, God's laughably faithful. In the sense that it's a joy. Uh, And this... This finds its focus, its punchline, we might say, with the birth of a miracle child, uh, like we finally see with Isaac in this chapter. Uh, We saw from chapter 12 on God's promise to make Abraham into a great nation, uh, promised him a son uh, to Sarah. But there's been all this build-up, with Sarah being barren and old, and Abraham and Sarah trying to fast-track it with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, but that they just make things worse uh, as Hagar uh, has a boy to Abraham, Ishmael, who's now the only contender uh, for Abraham's inheritance. And it gets more and more tense uh, in the story as we're waiting for this promised son of Sarah. Where is he? And then finally he arrives, just as God promised. But it's all over in a sentence. It's there in verse 2. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham. It's even shorter in the Hebrew, it's only five words, and it's done, like that, uh, like a snappy punchline, a punchline that gets all the right people laughing, uh, as the story moves us to focus not so much on Isaac, but on the impossible nature of his birth. It's a miracle, because Abraham uh, is so old. Verse 2 again, Sarah bore a son to Abraham in his old age, and verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. And Sarah is like, well, Abraham's a hundred, I'm ninety. And she says in verse seven, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've bought him a son in his old age. How many uh, nonagenarians and centenarians do you know having a baby of their own? Many? No, anyone? And Sarah doesn't just have Isaac, which is incredible itself, she suckles him and weans him. It's a miracle. Not a magic show. 
where everything is fake, this is very, very real. Like the world around us, which, interestingly enough, had, had a similar start, coming from nothing by God's word. Or well, in the same way, by God's word, brings God brings something from nothing with old Abraham and barren Sarah. His promised word is now in flesh, the miracle child, and it makes Sarah laugh. Uh, verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's laughter God has made for me. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Why? Well, because Isaac is an impossible child. A miracle. And this makes Sarah and all who hear it laugh. God makes people laugh by miraculously coming good on his word, which is something he planned for right from the beginning. Back in chapter 17, it's God who tells Abraham what's going to go down and when the child comes, when the son comes, uh, he's to call the boy Isaac. That's what God wants him named. And Isaac means he laughs. God isn't just going to keep his word when he does. He wants people to laugh with delight over it. There's a, a bunch of different running theories on why we laugh, if you didn't know. Uh, there's the relief theory, that laughter is in response to a bunch of built-up tension. Uh, for example, when people talk about sex, it can be a bit edgy, a little bit tense, and people tend to laugh, you might notice, to relieve the tension. Uh, there's the incongruity theory, uh, the idea that we find some unexpected things funny, when our expectations don't match reality, it makes us laugh, like, for example, a charging moose stopping to kiss you rather than trample you. Uh, that's not just a relief, that's absurd, and so it's funny. It's unexpected. And then there's the benign violations theory. There you go, that's a, a nice mouthful, isn't it? <coughs> the idea that some sort of norm, a moral norm or a social norm or a physical norm is violated, but in a harmless kind of way. Like someone uh, purposefully sneezing directly on a child. Or uh, Zoolander's air-headed model friends frolicking at a petrol station spraying each other with petrol like it was a water fight. And uh, it seems to me that God's kind of using these kind of things with the arrival of Isaac. After all, the tension, there is tension. After all this tension, it's a relief that Isaac finally rocks up. Uh, it's definitely unexpected in Abraham and Sarah's old age, and it's pretty it's a pretty drastic violation of a physical and social norm. Ninety year old barren women do not have babies. It's funny because well it's an impossible, delightful relief. Sarah can't help but laugh. Nor those who hear about it. God makes people laugh with the birth of this miracle child, because in it we see that he is so laughably faithful. And this is even more so with the birth of another miracle child. A miracle son that Isaac was just a shadow of. The miracle son, of course, being Jesus Christ. Because it, it wasn't just years of tension waiting for this promised son. It was centuries, millennia, waiting for this promised one, this promised son. The one that God promised would crush the head of Satan. The one that God promised would save people from the curse of sin. The one God promised would save people into eternal life with him. He's 
the relief. And he's unexpected. No one saw this coming. Not this one. Conceived and born of a virgin. Born directly of God. And he's more than a benign violation. This son turns everything upside down. God born as a baby? What? Bringing eternal life by dying? Hmm? Making unclean people clean? That's violating every norm in the book. You think about the heightened sense at the moment that we have uh, when someone sneezes in the supermarket. That happened to you recently? Or even just in the street. How do you feel? What do you do? Get away from me. Because we all know how viruses work. It's been drummed into us the last year. The one infected infects others. Right? That's the norm. If they cough and spit all over you, you get what they have. They have. The unclean make the clean unclean. Right? And yet Jesus won't fit into that norm. He makes the unclean clean as he touches them. And this can be funny if you think about it. Imagine someone purposefully sneezing on a child to make them better. You can imagine the uh, the Monty Python crew doing a bit of a skit like this. You know, a sneeze man going around from school to school sneezing on little children and them squealing with delight. Oh, please sneeze on me more. It's comical, right? But then at face value, so is Jesus as we read him spitting on someone and they're healed. Or his blood being spilt to cleanse people. It seems absurd. But as he touches sick people and they're clean, we see he's actually God's laughable faithfulness in the flesh. His promise in person. And if you're in on the joke... If you're the one that he's touching and you believe him, surprise, you're healed of all your sin. You're clean before God, just as he promised. And this, well, it should make you laugh. With relief, with surprise, with delight at God's faithfulness. But if you haven't or you haven't for a while, it might be because you're trying to get clean in your own steam. Uh, like Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth after murdering the king. She's furiously scrubbing imaginary drops of blood from her hands, going insane with guilt, crying out, damn spot. There's no joy there. There's no laughter there. No laughter in working hard to get rid of the guilt for whatever it is for you. It doesn't matter how hard you scrub at being good, at doing all the right things, at saying all the right things, at trying to make things right, at berating yourself, at being a better person. The simple fact is you can't clean that dirty feeling inside because that stain is sin and it's never coming out with anything you do. There's never any joy relying on our own abilities and works to make things right with God. So stay in the joy of God's gift of Jesus to you. Keep laughing along with God at the goodness of Jesus. Don't trust in your own flawed faithfulness because we all know we can't keep our own standards, let alone God's. Rely afresh on God's laughable faithfulness in Jesus and let the relieving, surprising and delightful goodness of Jesus make you laugh along as God promised 
promises forgiveness and cleansing in his name, as he wants you to, because in Jesus, God's so laughably faithful. So that's the first one. God's laughably faithful. Which brings us to uh, the second part of this passage in point two. Uh, Because God's so laughably faithful to us, point two, we're to be generous to all people as he is. After Sarah sees Ishmael mocking Isaac in this passage, God seems to accept Sarah's assessment of the threat. That as Abraham's oldest son, now at odds with Isaac, Ishmael needs to go. So we read verse 12, But God said to him, Don't be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Clearly, God's eternal promises to Abraham are to be through Isaac, not Ishmael. But that that doesn't mean that God stops caring for Ishmael and his mother. As he goes on to say, verse 13, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So, taking him at his word, Abraham sends Ishmael and Hagar away, and God ends up looking after them. He hears the boy crying, he comforts Hagar, he helps her find water for them. He's with Ishmael, we see in verse 20. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert, became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Ishmael survives and thrives because God treasures him and is generous towards him. Why? See that there in verse 12. Again, because he's Abraham's offspring, because of the link to Abraham. God treasures Ishmael and his descendants. He's generous towards them. And I think we should be like him in this. As those who know how laughably faithful he is to us in Jesus, we should be generous towards those who are not his special people. Uh, Generous as he was then because of their link to Abraham. Uh, Generous as he is now because of everyone's link to Christ. As the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, For by him, that is Christ, all things were made, were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. All things, all people were created by Christ and for Christ. They hold together in Christ. We are linked to everyone else as, a, as creatures in Christ. Our Jesus, in whom we know the laughable faithfulness of God, is the creator of all people. And he's generous towards them in giving them this world, a world that's full of many good things, things that sustain human flourishing, things that Christ happily and generously gives them. And so, as Christ is generous to all, we should be generous to all as well even if they scorn us and mock us, as Ishmael did Isaac. We're to be generous towards them, as God is in Christ. Picked up a copy of Richard Wormbrand's Daily Meditations on God's Word and His Love the other day. Uh, he's a, he was a Romanian pastor who suffered terribly at the hands of his communist government at the time, and his devotional is full of stories of God's people being incredibly generous towards those that have treated them pretty badly. It's quite moving to hear of people in the world, once antagonistic, turned around by the sometimes simple yet loving gestures of God's people towards them, being generous because they know that's what their God is like. 
But what might it look like for us? For us as a church and for us individually as we're out there in the workplace. How might we be generous towards those in the world, particularly as they mock us and scorn us? Firstly, as a church, uh, Stephen McAlpine, uh, in his helpful little book, Being the Bad Guys, he makes some good suggestions. I recommend this book. He notes that the uh, simplest strategy is, firstly, uh, to preference God's people, to deeply commit to those in your church family, such that uh, we're seen by the world, to be a community drawn across social and cultural boundaries, loving and serving each other, purely because we share Jesus in common. Which will cost us, as we put our uh, long-term church relationships ahead of perhaps career advancement, or sideline other relationships that are more important, or sorry, more about us and our interests for the sake of those that we share little in common with except Jesus and our church family. But in a world of fracturing Tribalism, it's hard to overestimate how attractive this is. And we want to adorn the gospel of Jesus to make it as attractive as possible so that we reach more and more people with Jesus, right? But it's hard to do that if there isn't a we to do it. We need the we to reach out. So we need to do life together. We need to regularly catching up in church doing meals together, doing growth group together, doing catch-ups, doing kids' stuff together. Paradoxically, in being generous towards those in the world, we need, firstly, to preference God's people so that the we we reach out with for Jesus' sake is a we that those in the world want to be a part of. Uh, Another way that uh, Stephen suggests is to promote God's promises particularly the promise of eternal life in Jesus, which should get easier the more that we press into God's laughable faithfulness. Because if God's been faithful to his promise to cleanse us and to make us his own special people by the working of the miracle son Jesus, then we can trust he'll bring us into a future glory as promised by that very same Jesus. And it's the confidence that comes along with this of our eternal future secured that can free us, free us to happily serve a world that scorns and rejects us now. We can be known as those who serve and improve our communities, helping out at things like English as a second language classes, giving our time and our energy to something like a mother's playgroup, or putting our energy and our time into kids' church, or Friday night youth, or taking a scripture class, or Caring for the down and out by providing a space and a friendly face to help them get back on their feet. Or just simply by getting along to support things in our community. Helping out at weekend sports, getting along to our kids' school PNC, supporting that fundraiser, going to people's parties and weddings and funerals. And as we go to their things and serve them in their spaces... As Sam Chan points out in his great little book, How to Talk About Jesus, they'll become our friends and then they're more likely to come along to our things. Like church. Or the things that our church is putting on. Let's be generous to those in the world by promoting God's promise of eternal life with Jesus in happily spending our time now on others and serving them where they're at. That's, as a church, how about us as we 
go to work or to uni or to school or, or club that we're a part of? How do we respond when the culture war comes to us there? You know, maybe when your contract is redrafted to include a review of whether you promote uh, the LGBTQI community more positively or not. Or when your company is threatened with the cancel culture if it doesn't positively promote equality. Or when your club plans a rainbow day. Or when you're asked to recommend the best place for an abortion. Or when your PNC or school puts on a wear it purple day. Or when you push to promote sexual diversity in the classroom. Or when you push to affirm those seeking gender transition. How then do we respond generously towards those in the world? Well, firstly, it's to entrust them to God. Although distressed by the situation with Ishmael, Abraham trusted God to look after them. And even though it didn't sit well with him and his natural feelings to send Ishmael and Hagar away, he listened to God and he entrusted them to him. And maybe that's where we need to start. As we're all churned up inside to turn to God's word for how to pray when facing opposition in the world. To go to Psalm 109, for instance, or to go to the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Or to the end of the Bible in Revelation, come Lord Jesus. And then after leaving any sense of vengeance or anger or frustration or despair properly at the feet of God, to then pray God's generous will be done in the lives of those pressuring us and resisting him. Pray earnestly and sincerely and generously that they be saved. Secondly, to be generous and honouring and respecting and serving people. To be consistently doing what's good and right for others and good and right uh, for the workplace or the uni that we're a part of or the school or the club that we're in. To be known as that person who's full of integrity, uh, as a diligent worker, humble in our mistakes, uh, to live exemplary, grace-filled and generous lives so that any allegation that our beliefs lead us to be mean-spirited, hostile and dangerous just falls flat. If you're consistently honouring people and respecting them, loving them and serving them, it's much harder for them to punish you for holding to Christian views on some things that they disagree with. They might even have good reason to rethink their own understanding and be more open to the good very good news of Jesus to them. These are just a couple of uh, many ways that we might be generous, happily generous, uh, towards those in the world, even as they scorn us. As we know, this is how God is towards them in Jesus. When I was at uh, uni many years ago, I knew a girl who laughed loud and heartily and quickly. Uh, it was uh, infectious. You couldn't help but laugh along with her. Maybe you've known or you know someone like that. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of effect on others when it comes to God? To be so delighted by his laughable faithfulness in Jesus that we live in such a generous way towards those around us, even when they're having a go at us, that our joy in Christ is unshaken and infectious so that they want in on what's so funny. And I'm going to pray to that end now. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your uh, surprising, relieving and delightful faithfulness to us in and through Jesus. 
Thank you that you are unbelievably faithful to your word and you miraculously fulfill your promises in and through Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord, and we, we praise you for him. Please help us to laugh at the goodness and the delight of your promises in Jesus fulfilled and to trust you in the midst of a world uh, that scorns us to be like you towards them, generous in our prayers and our actions, such that we might commend you to them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.